HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ray Isle. We'll talk to Ray about wine, his new book, The World in a Wine Glass. I want to talk to him about wine journalism and more. I asked Ray to pull a wine out to taste for our weekly wine sip that was somewhat representative of what we're here talking about. We'll get to that a little later in the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Ray Isle hails from deep in the heart of Texas and the son of an English professor who probably pissed his dad off after leaving academia to pursue wine writing. He's the executive editor for Food and Wine and the Wine and Spirits editor for Travel and Leisure. He's been on the beat for over two decades covering wine, spirits, and cocktails. Ray is a journalist, sought-after speaker, and now legit author. His brand-new book, The World in a Wine Glass, The Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wines to Drink Now, is an extensive and personal tome on the great natural wines and their makers from around the world. And it just was released yesterday, and we'll tell you where you can get it. Raymond, welcome back to the Grape Nation. It's great to be back. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> so you brought up offline before we went on that you were on the show a while ago. So you were on episode 81 of the podcast. That was back in September of 2018. Podcast was Young Men. So I want to point one thing out. A lot of times I'll talk to my guests and say, give me some background. How'd you get here? We did that. 
So if you want to know more about Ray's background and all this stuff, how he got to where he is, listen to that episode on The Great Nation. That's 81. Today, we're going to focus on the present Great. and the future. <laughs> all right. All right. So let's get started. Before we get into the book, because mm-hmm. I have you here. I want to talk to you about wine and journalism. Sure, right? absolutely. I want to get your take on a few things. Because you've been, you're not an old guy by any stretch, but you've been around through, you know, some growth transitions and evolutions. And I'm curious on your take. Um, in the old days, I guess you're around then when you published one hard copy issue a month. <laughs> and initially when it started happening, there was some online content, but it's certainly not what it is today. You knocked out maybe one or two stories per issue. I mean, it wasn't like you had all the space to do all that. So I'm curious the way you see it. How has journalism changed with the proliferation of all this content and the options they come on? And you're part of them. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's changed you know, massively, I would say, um, inescapably and, and, and it, it won't ever go back to what it was before. You know, as you said, when I started, yeah, you do your one story for the issue. And there's a whole other show, like, how'd you get to that story? Yeah. How frustrated were you that you yeah. couldn't do another? Yeah. You wanted, and, but you know, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah. And, and that was it though. That was your one story, you right. know, or, or even some issues you didn't have any stories, you know, necessarily. Right. And Ray, you're out. And the, uh, so the pace was very, very different. Um, and you know, the, 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 you know, magazine publishing works on, uh, you know, print, print publishing works on a, on a, on a certain schedule that's, that's relatively slow in that and relatively far in advance. Um, you know, you may be six months in advance of the issue being published when you write the story or longer, um, print, uh, digital publishing, you know, you write it today, you publish it tomorrow. Um, and that, that changes the equation in a lot of ways. Also digital, you know, the, the, the other, I mean, there's so many, di- so many things are different, but the other thing is, is in terms simply in terms of real estate, you know, in a, in a print magazine, you've got what, 85 pages, 110 pages. That's it. You've got, you know, as much as you can sell against ads. So you've only got a certain number of stories each issue and, right. and no more. Right. And whereas a website, can be more or less infinite. You can, you can publish a lot. It, you, it, it turns out to be better if you don't just publish everything willy nilly because you, you dilute your, um, your traffic and your, and your search stuff. But I still mostly write for print. Mo- everything I do in print runs online. Um, at when the, you say that stylistically, um, like I'm writing a magazine article, but it'll go, I'm yeah. not writing an online piece or a yeah, so, is so that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Well, for food and wine. So I, I write a regular monthly column for the magazine right. and I write, um, features pretty regularly for both food and wine and travel and leisure. And all of those end up on the websites, but I don't do uh, for lack of time to some degree, cause I'm also editing other stories. Um, I don't do a lot of original digital content, um, because, um, it's only so much time in the day. Right. Um, and I've got, I do a lot of speaking and I do a lot of traveling and right. all that kind of thing. So our, you know, our digital drinks editor, Oset, um, you know, may, may work on, you know, 10 stories a week or something. Um, some of them are short news blips. Some of them are longer stories. Um, and you know, a lot of that kind of comes by me in some way, or at least to look at, but it's just a t- completely different pace. It's also realistically for freelancers, it's a completely different pay scale. Um, you know, you, 
writing for digital pays less than writing for print still, right. strangely. Um, and I just said there's so many things that are different. Part, also because if you look back to when I started, because there wasn't so much digital information about wine, so much online information about wine, um, the, your audience was different. Because your audience didn't have access to simply Googling, you know, what is an oak barrel or, you know, um, wine and oak or and getting an answer on their phone. Right. In, in, two, in zero seconds. Right. You know, and and so that's that's general. That's too, general. But wine uh, is so diverse and complex yeah. that it and, offers that. Yeah. And also wine was was and is to some degree still one of those topics that the, the large consumer audience doesn't know as much about as they'd like to know about and right. they find it somewhat daunting. Right. Um, so that access to online information has been democratizing in a lot of ways. The, so the, I love that word yeah, because it used to be four or five old white guys that wrote about <laughs> or one, I, one particular I, sounds old white worse guy. than I meant. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that really had sway. That was unbelievable. The democratization. Yeah. And with that you get, and you also get misinformation and, and random opinions and, and all that kind of thing as well, but you do get much more access to wine and you, and you're, you know, you're also seeing as a result of that, the, the, the gates to who can write about wine are, are much more open than they once right. were, which is great. Right. The, the individual level of influence is smaller for each, for one person. But, you know, um, I mean, it did, wine writing did used to be just a bunch of white guys. Really? <laughs> and now I, I, wine I mean, writing is, you know. It, it, you it know, really I, was. I mean, and yeah. we'll talk about that. So because of that, the democratization, the amount there's just a lot more out there because you can do it. Um, and I'm sure you spend time, you know, looking at your own guy stuff and plenty of other stuff. Do you worry about, and you alluded to it, quality and accuracy or? Yeah. Because that's an issue on the Internet anyway. We talk oh. about politics, and, right? <laughs> let's, let's not even begin to yeah. talk about politics yeah. on the Internet. It's <laughs> insane. Yeah. And, no, you actually have to worry about it. I mean, the, there are a couple of things. One you know, the, the resources for a publication for fact-checking and so on are much smaller than they used to be. For instance, when I was at Food & Wine originally, we had a whole fact-checking department. We we now have some fact-checking, but we don't have five people fact-checking everything. Um, and that's just a question of economy and, and cost. Um, you also, if, you're, if you have a lot of online content that's being produced really, really rapidly, there's less time to be, you know, right. you know really diligently accurate about it. Um, particularly in sites that, that, you know, sort of demand an incredible production rate. And it's not, not usually, that's not usually wine, but, you know, many of the kind of, um, you know, the sites that sort of have, have just endless stories, you know, proceeding throughout the day, you, there's no way to do an in-depth study of something. You don't have the time to research it. True. Um, you know, so there's that. On the other hand, there's also a lot more information and, and a lot of it is accurate. So you, it's, it's a, so you're Bit not more, overly concerned um, that there's a flood of. I'm. Yeah. I'd be the thing. I would. I am concerned about, and I and I am concerned about it, particularly when I talk to younger writers. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I've been at Food and Wine a long time. Um, seemingly, knock on everything, I'm. It's, it's stable, and I'm not going anywhere for a little while, at least. Um, but when I talk to young younger writers who are getting into wine writing, or or even are writing pretty steadily, it's just really hard to make a living. You know, right. it's very hard to find any kind of full-time gig writing about wine. It's all piecework. It pays very little if it's digital. And 
and that's a shame. I mean, writing's always been a writing's always been a really ridiculous and foolish idea. If you want to make a living, it's you know you don't do it because you want to become rich. You it do got it cause harder because you because yeah, passionate. it was a passion thing. Yeah, right. But that said, when when it was kind of primarily print, you know, there were a lot of there were. I mean, I can't count how many like regular newspaper wine columnists there were in in most cities, right. and now there aren't. Um, you know, and there's a lot of digital content, but it pays so little that it's very hard to make your rent. Um, it's like the fact checkers. It's budgetary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, paper will look at what can we afford and it ain't a wine guy. Yeah. You know, which and is, it's, uh, you know, and it, I mean, content is largely free on, on, on the internet. Right. So where's you, the revenue stream? You and I have been to enough functions from fancy lunches or dinners by singular winemakers or huge portfolio tastings. And they're mostly attended by, um, you know, contract writers, freelance writers. Yeah. I mean, there's a hand, there's you, there's James Mulworth, you know, Josh Green walks, there's that yeah. small handful of guys. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's a shame. I mean, I, 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 which is just, I mean, I thank God there are freelance writers out there because we couldn't put out a yeah. magazine without freelance writers or run our website without freelance writers. And I think it's an, you know, it's a, it, in terms of writing, it's just as noble a thing to do. Right. Um, it's just really hard to, to make enough money doing it. Right. So um, thank God people still do it. Yeah. Um, two things about that, which I just want you to comment on. There's definitely a diversity in content. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess when we're talking about the old guy, Parker, he was writing a lot about Bordeaux and Rowan. Yeah. You know, now people are writing about everything emerging. What Twitter was a million years ago when you got the news early, all these people are, you know, out there. So there's a diversity in content I want you to talk about. But the other great thing is there's a diversity in the content creators. Yes. And there's an effort by our industry to really open that because there were a lot of gatekeepers. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's and it's been you know it's like they're they're you know uh, the diversity you know the diversity in wine writers has grown dramatically since since I started for one thing there's many 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 more women in the wine business right. than there were in every time. aspect in every aspect whether it's whether it's making wine or being a sommelier or writing about wine and everything which is great and then now you're seeing diversity you know you know you know younger black women or men writing about wine, younger, you know, um, Latinx or Latino, whatever you want to say, men and women writing about wine, which is, which is crucial for the wine business because, you know, it, it, it also, it's, it, you know, extrapolates outward to creating a new audience for right. wine at the same time. Right. And if you're, if the only people buying wine are middle-aged, you know, you know, uh, white guys or middle-aged, you know, even, even middle-aged, just wealthy people, then, or the same people who have been doing it for the right, last yeah, 20, then, 30 years, then you limit your, you limit the potential for wine itself to grow. And, and I think that a number of things have played into that one, the diversity in terms of people writing about it. You've also got people who, you know, were role models, um, in a completely different field who get into wine, like all the NBA guys who are into wine, right. which, which takes wine from being like, what is this to being this stuff is cool clearly because cj mccollum's into it or or lebron is into it so greg popovich really or greg popovich i mean it's like then then you're like well okay i should try this stuff right. and then you know also it's there's as you pointed out there's this massive growth and diversity of 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 what wines are available here and what you know you simply what you see on a restaurant list and 
you know, it used to be you'd see Bordeaux, Burgundy, Chianti, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you still see those, but you see Slovenia and you see, uh, you know, Hungarian wines and you see Lebanese wines and you see wines from parts of Italy like Valdosta that weren't really talked about that much 20, 30 years ago or whatever, probably 30 years at this point. And that's, that's fantastic. It, it's a, I mean, I do think that right now, if you were interested in wine, you have such a wealth at hand that is unlike it ever was before. You also, it, that also means, you know, it's that, it's that the, the, what they call it, you know, the, the, um, the, the freedom of choice is also stress of choice in some ways. Right. You know, suddenly, instead of walking into a wine store and you can get, you know, Chianti, Burgundy, yeah, no, Porto, wine Napa. Wine can do that. Now there. you're like, well, I don't know if I like Lebanese wines, you know. Right. And you should. They're really good. Um, I, I always mention this, and I know you believe it. If you have a good wine store and you like the people and you see they're doing something, you defer to them and they'll always set you in the right and. Once you learn about wines, you see certain importers yeah. are painfully bringing in these, you know, uh, wines and all of that. Um, this is, I think, separate, but I also want to get your take on it. What effect? So we see how online has had an impact, which you and I think is bigger, better, you know, good, more good. Um, what effect has social media <laughs> had on that because i guess these basketball guys use yep. that and you know maybe there'd be more of a vacuum sommeliers are you know now rock stars when they were just schlepping bottles up how do you see social media well, and we could do a show on it yeah so give me I mean, your it'd be an entire topic for a show i mean i think that one you know you have your influencer realm let's say which can be people who either work as influencers or people who are simply famous and are influential, you know, does who, that also include people who think they're influencers well, actually, and yeah, maybe they're really, yeah. you know, who and, was this and, guy and, thing? Yeah. And there's also, you know, if you talk to anyone in the, in the, particularly in the travel world, there's just plenty of people who are supposedly influencers who are mostly looking for free nights and hotels, but, right. but there are influencers and then there are, That's and sometimes true. weird things happen. It's like I was talking to, you know, uh, Maria Kopich who makes wonderful, yeah, you know, sure. um, natural wines in, in, in Austria. And, and she said, basically sort of out of nowhere, Dua Lipa, you know, photographed herself with one of their wines in Paris, which just blew up their, so their, their, certainly blew up their own social media and kind of, and she's like, you know, you couldn't, we didn't pay for it. We couldn't pay. We couldn't dream of free media or something like that. Yeah. And it just was sheer chance. And, but it has an effect, but, but the other, the, the bigger part of social media and wine, I think is that, is that as you as you get to a younger audience, more and more people base their buying decisions on social media, not from necessarily from influence, but from their friends and from you know peer to peer, peer to peer, and who they see you know their what they see their friends drinking is what they drink, and it's it that didn't exist pre social media. That's good, and that, that is a, a, a counter force or a, a additional force to the kind of expert opinion side of things, right? Um, and then there are sites, you know, I'm I don't use them but like the Vivinos where there's peer ratings, not, yeah. you know, critic ratings and all that. Um, so if we had to check the box and say social media for wine generally has been good, neutral, negative, what would you say? That's a hard one. I mean, I'm not convinced social media has been good for humanity. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's a fair base, <laughs> you know, and then and, apply wine to and, it and, and no better or and, worse. And for wine, I'm not sure it's, yeah, I'm not sure that it falls into better or worse. You know, um, it'd be hard to make a call whether it's improved wine or, or, you know, right. made it worse, but it's, it's definitely made politics worse, you know? Yeah. We don't want to, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
you know. We're not going to get into a fist fight because we also, probably agree on most stuff, uh, yeah. but we don't want to go there. And also, you want, you also just look at yourself and you're like, so you're like, how much time am I spending on social media and why am I doing this? I could be drinking wine instead. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> a, a whole other issue. Um, all right, moving along, I want you to um, hang in there with me on this. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always perceived food and wine as a mainstream publication. Mm -hmm. I don't think you, you know, you can argue that if you look in the wine world and other areas, music, you know, there are definitely things out of the mainstream. Um, I've thought of you as a mainstream wine writer. Um, but, and one of the reasons I'm really interested in being here is I know you've changed through the years mm -hmm. and you've morphed into something a little different. And, to me, that the new book proves that, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, it's basically, you know, here, here's what I'm thinking and all that. So the thing that I'm curious about, and I don't know when it starts, but you walk me through it. Tell me about the transition to your interest in what you and I call sustainable wines, organic wines, mm -hmm. biodynamic, thoughtful wines, small artisanal, family, million words, regenerative farming, which is, you know, not a buzzword, but a big discussion now. Um, when did this start? Well, it started, it started quite a while ago, I would say. I'll back up and say, you know, the, the nature of food and wine is that we're, we're some close to a million circulation and readerships like 7 million. So it, unless you're writing to alienate a lot of readers you have to have wines and some wines at least in the magazine that are findable and the way right. that wine sales are structured the way that wine laws are structured in the u.s if you write solely about small production wines most people won't find them because they're not you can't just go to amazon and have it sent to you right. you have to find a store that has that wine that is valentine zuslin's riesling that comes in the u.s in 300 or 400 cases and is in maybe you know 15 or stores around the country. And then when you've got 7 million readers, that means a lot of people emailing you and saying, I can't find this wine. Why did you write about it? And I think then as, they start cursing. Yeah. At you. Yeah. They start cursing, you know, or they at least just give up on it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, so in my role as the wine editor for food and wine, I think it's honestly not a service to the readership to, to solely concentrate on, on truly small production wines. I try to put in as much as I can. Um, Second to that, as time has gone by, I've gotten more and more interested, partly because I've always had a concern about ecology, environment, et cetera. My father was an English professor, but he started a, a kind of a, a institute at, at his, where he was teaching that was kind of literature in the environment. It's, it's been a big part of my life growing up. And as the climate has gotten more alarming, my interest in farm wines that are made with grapes that are farmed in a way that doesn't, um, that helps the environment rather than screws it up has become more and more dominant. Um, and then, and so, and then that plays into terroir because you, the, I mean, one of the big sort of conversations about terroir right now is the question of whether soil, I mean, living soil, you know, it, can you have terroir if you've killed the soil, if you've blasted it with enough chemicals that there's no microbial life in the soil, don't we both agree? No. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's terroir at that no, point, but I, that I mean, industri post-industrial, industrial Europe where yeah. they killed it and, you know, some people yeah. brought it back. I mean, that's not, but it's interesting because that conversation in, in the wine writing world is, is somewhat recent. And this, in terms of the soil life question, it's, it's been, I mean, 
there was talk about it. I mean, I, I you know, I, so specify two things. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. The discussion of soil regenerative farming, soil health is somewhat recent. But the discussion of things you mentioned earlier, you know, sustainable practices right. and all that, that goes back further. It, you, you know, when do you think, not when it started, but when did it really start resonating and, you know, it, it was a real thing? Well, it's interesting. So I remember doing a tasting of biodynamic wines probably in the early 2000s. Like okay. when, let me think about this, because I think it was when I was at Wine and Spirits, not Food and Wine. And it was tied to Nicolas Jolie's Return to Terroir movement, which I think started around 2000, 2001. Um, I could be wrong. It's been a while. <laughs> you know, okay. and, and what memory was, was there? But we're talking the, almost 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, we're talking 20 years and ago. And we're using the word biodynamics. We're using the word biodynamics, but it was very much a non common realm of discussion right. at the time. And it was a it was a tasting of biodynamic versus non-biodynamic wines. Can you taste the difference? Is there a difference? And I think that within the trade, at least, if you say biodynamics now, everybody knows at least to some degree what you're referencing. And back then it was not the case. Um, the question of sustainability, I mean, sustainability has been a word that's been around for a while, but I think there's just much more concentration on it. I think part of what happens for me, and this is maybe seems to me this way because I work for a food magazine that's that has wine and realistically food and wine is food and wine um it's right. a whole lot of food and as much right. wine as I can jam in there um, never was different really yeah I no mean, it's always you, been you look at way. any magazine from the beginning the coverage is obvious yeah it is what it is yeah but I think with the interest in in food in where what you're eating comes from how it was grown you know there was a a bump in that in kind of the 60s and there was kind of like a um you know felt like it faded away for a while and it like kind of crunchy gr granola crunchy, hippie the, the crunchy granola hippie era to, yeah and then that and then you start and you get, got pringles yeah and then you get pringles and you've got you know mcdonald's happy meals and whatnot right. and then and then somewhere along the way you start to get you know the resurgence of the farmer's market or green market thing you get you get michael pollan writing about um you know, food. We're talking had, about a dozen years. Yeah, a dozen or, or since he, a little uh, longer. Yeah, but a little longer for the whole like mass interest in organic produce and and at wine trends in a lot of ways in terms of consumption, in terms of what consumers are doing, often often trail after food trends by a few years. And I think that interest you, you see that. You, yeah, I never. Yeah. Re it makes sense, but you yeah. track that. Well, I mean, the by nature, the food audience is much bigger because. Right. But we all have to eat. We don't right. all have to drink wine. Bigger marketing arms. Bigger marketing arms, just more consumption. Right. I mean, everybody eats. Um, and so I think you start to see, and, it, and, it, and it's interesting because it, it definitely increases as you scale younger in terms of your audience. You start to see in wine over the past few years much more interest in that, those same questions that apply to food. Where did it come from? How was it grown? what did they do when they were growing it? And am I putting it in my body, you know, and am you know, I cool? And even the story of who's making it. And the story stuff. of who's making it. And, the, you know, the natural wine movement, which kind of parallels that and, and grows at the same time, responds to a lot of those questions too. Right. Well, we're going to talk about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's finish this uh, yeah. category because I'm telling you, we're unloading on all the stuff yeah. we just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you had mentioned when you write – the direction you took towards these thoughtful wines that, listen, I can't write about wines all the time that, you know, are small production and people can't get. So how does that influence? Does that mean you have to write about 
certain wines, or I'll give you a good example. There's a winery, Louis Roderer, that's mm-hmm. pretty good in size and accessible that yeah. follows, you know, these practices. Do you move towards producers like that or you still have to throw out a little of everything? I try. And, and I don't know if you want to answer that. Yeah, well, I try and keep a balance in the column that I do for food and wine of wines that are broadly findable, wines that are going to take some hunting, you know, um, and kind of between those. I also keep trying to keep a balance of, of price point, too. Um, and that's because uh, conveniently, I don't have to score wines and I don't be- really believe in or like scoring wines. And so I just we're going to talk about yeah, that. We'll don't talk about that but, but short version that that leaves things open to me kind of for my column, at least trying to create an, a, a, a kind of assortment of wines, I think, are really good that fit the readership. You know, some are findable easily, some are not. I try, I don't. Well, what if they're popular? Like well, there's a wine popular, about a guy who's in jail, yeah, which has been wildly popular. 19, High residual sugar. Crimes, yeah. Well, no, prisoner. No, prisoner. Oh, that one too. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but those are popular wines and, and crowd pleasers. Yeah. Do, does that, that fits into covering things, but that's, does that fit into the direction well, of where you're going or where we should be going? I would say there are a lot of popular wines that are also made conscientiously. You know, La Rotor is a great example. Right. Where, where the people. So there's a, there's, so, a, there's enough out there that I can, I can write a column that includes wines that are made in, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 case amounts. Yeah, that and, doesn't... And, know, and are made in 1,500 case amounts and and provides something for the readers that also brings in wines that I think are really good. I don't. I never write about anything that I think sucks. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. that that's that's a <laughs> yeah. major criteria. Yeah. And I guess that would be wines that use mega purple or manipulate the acidity. And yeah. there are a lot of wines we know that do that. Yeah. So that answers the question. So certainly with where things are going and how you're writing, you're very conscientious. And we talked about at least four or five different things, accessibility, price, you know, the type of, uh, you know, winemaking you're doing and all of that. Um, Do readers reach out to you and say, Hey, how come you're not writing more about Camus or something? Do you get, you know, I get honestly, in terms of reader comments, it used to be, you got people would, would, would send you letters or whatever. And, and a lot of those, I mean, realistically, a lot of them were, you know, I can't find what you're writing about. And and that can be anything you can write about yellowtail and someone will write in and say, I can't find this anywhere. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and you're just like, I, where are you shopping? You know, right. and, and, and I don't, so, don't usually write about yellowtail, but, you know, but, but yeah, it's just it's a good it's point just, though. It's just bizarre. Cause any, take any wine, someone's local store won't have it, whatever it is, you know, it'll be at the store next door, but it won't be at their store. And then they'll assume that therefore it's not findable anywhere. Right. Um, you know, so, I, I can't help that. What unfortunately, what you find with with social media and so on, with people's responses online, is you get you you get a lot from the fringe, you know. Um, and you know, it's I think the classic one for me, and this is where I stopped paying attention to a lot of comments, was quite a while ago when I was doing a story. I wrote about casseroles and wine, which is a very food and wine thing to do. It's like it was an online. It was a it was a pure digital piece. It was probably 12 years ago or something like 15 right. years ago. Whenever whenever Obama was in office. Um, how many years ago is that now? Um, That's uh, a while. A while. And I wrote this piece about casseroles and apparently the Obamas had been on Martha Stewart. Uh, not sorry, Martha Stewart. Had been on Martha's Vineyard and had 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 been photographed like they were having a dinner and there were casseroles involved. And so I started getting comments about how 
this wine, this thing I wrote about pairing wines with casseroles, which is a kind of a ridiculous topic anyway, was clearly meant that I was an Obama supporter right. and, and a left-wing lunatic. And, <laughs> it's and, you, and at that point, That's a great like, story. You're just like – because everything is so out there. Why are you writing about casseroles? Yeah, I, Why are you I mean, writing about wine and yeah, casseroles? I mean, of all the Obama meals, you're pulling a casserole. Right. Out? I mean, and it's, it's, it's like, so, the, you know, that, so so you're making this leap that I'm writing about like Chardonnay goes well with chicken a la king. Therefore, I'm part of the, you know, the leftist, you know, um, right. secret cabal. And it, it just was the. I just thought, oh, my God, get me out of this. The bigger answer to my question was <laughs> you're going to get a response on anything. Yes. Uh, anytime by anyone. So yeah. I, that that's, you know, a really good example that bears that out. Yeah. All right. I want to ease into the book now. And there's a shitload of stuff we have to talk about. All right. So you were talking about it before and I didn't want you to, you know, get into it because I want to start with it now. You skillfully uh, and we'll talk about how the book is set up and mm -hmm. laid out. But at the beginning of the book, you skillfully define really what organics is, you know, by definition, not your best effort, but, you know, your best research and how you put it out. What biodynamics is, the difference. Um, sustainability is a word that gets thrown around. Mm -hmm. Don't misunderstand that word. Um, regenerative farming, which is really important, but thank God is a topic people are talking about. And you talk about all those, you know, words as it relates to wine, obviously, because mm -hmm. they do relate to food and even other things. I'm just curious, because as long as I've been doing the podcast, this whole natural wine, natural wine movement, natural wine people, natural wine writing, you know, has just been, I have Alice firing on, you know, one month and the next month I have someone else that's like yelling at her or something. Um, <laughs> is it harder? You've, you've defined those terms. Is it harder to define natural wine or does all that lead up to, yes, that's what natural wine is? Well, yeah. I mean, natural, a couple things. I mean, Natural wine, in a way, natural wine by definition does not have a definition that is like that is approved by an authority. Right. Which didn't the French attempt the French something? Attempt, yeah, the French tried. You know, and and maybe that'll work. But the truth is, most people who make natural wine don't really want to be told by an authority what their right. natural wine is. They don't even want to register for certification, yeah. and they're over. Yeah, which I which I respect. I mean, you know, it's 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 no different than the you know take your indie music movement, take you know a, a movements in art. You know, a lot of this is is trying to take what is seen as the as the you know codified kind of way of doing something and saying the hell with that. I'm right. going to do it the way I think is right. It's a very anti corporate movement too. Obviously, it's a very anti chemical farming movement, as which is great. It's you know the I think the the nothing added, nothing removed is a very broad but kind of um working working line for natural wine i think the the one reason i did the book is that and this is kind of within the wine world rather than the outside consumer world there's such enmity and and hostility between quote-unquote natural wine and conventional wine if you want to call it that there's a lot of like all you know all natural wine sucks you know, or right. all, all conventional wine is, is just chemical garbage. Right. And, and that bugs me because in the book, a lot of the producers, I write about natural wines and about a lot of producers who are working biodynamically, who don't, you know, utilize much, if any sulfur, who are incredibly conscientious, just live on the land, 
they work and express their their land through their wines, but are somehow not natural or not quote unquote natural. Right. And that that which weird, is the tricky part of what we're talking dividing about. line yeah. bugs me. And it's a partly because you know there's an element of natural wine which is a little bit of a club, um, and it's partly because if you're, I mean, let's I mean. Pick a pick a you know pick domain Lafleve or something. It doesn't get to be natural wine because it's really expensive, um, right? And even though some natural wines have now so many extremely expensive, right? Um, the real division for me and what I wanted to point out is between you know call it you know, what natural wines and everybody who's working conscientiously in ways that benefit the environment and make making great wines to talk about plates and mass produced industrial commercial products that are you know perfectly tasty but have no you know no soul or soul. what you want you know right. no 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 real sense of place and you know I, I i wanted to also make a point in the book that you don't have to be you know um a, a kind of a, a fanatic about this stuff if you, i mean i think i make the you know arguments like if i come off of a hike in hot weather um or i've been mowing the lawn in the sun in houston and someone hands me a budweiser that's cold, I'm going to drink it and I'm going to be happy. And, and you're I, not a bad and, guy. And it's like, I love great craft beer, but I'm, I mean, it's hot and I want something right. cold and a beer. And so right. I think with wine, it's a little bit similar. It's like, if you like, you know, large production commercial wines that, that are made in hundred thousand gallon tanks and hundred thousand gallon tanks and taste good because everything tastes good now. There's not a lot of like deeply flawed wine. Right. It's made that's, to taste good and yeah. taste the same as the year before and next year. And taste the same as the year before and next year. And fine. It's like there's always been that kind of wine in the world and and drink what you like, you know, but but if you want something more out of wine, then that's not the wine to drink. If you want something that's that is both kind of fits to how you think the world ought to be treated and additionally that gives you more of a story and more depth to the wine, then look some look at look at someone look at someone who's making wine who's on their own land who farms in a way that you agree with that right has kids running around has, in the yeah vineyard. i mean so many winemakers i talked to for this book are like well of course i don't use a lot of chemicals in my farming because my kids play in the vines and right. it's like yeah 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 probably you shouldn't blast your kids with roundup every day do you think the awareness of the consumer at this point is somewhat up on all of that getting better at it i mean has natural wine in the right use of the term mainstreaming has it I think it's I, so. It's an interesting question because natural wine is still a very, 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 very tiny percentage of the wine yes. that's sold in the U.S. It's yes. a super Need tiny to percentage. be known. Yeah, and there's and and partly because there's not enough of it because it's quite it's quite popular. It's gotten far more ink than there is wine. In right, a sense. which kind of sucks. Kinda, and kinda, you mentioned why two yeah. three times. You know? And it's a good thing. It's you know, as a journalist, it's fun to write about. It's cool. It's transgressive. It's you know, all this kind of stuff. And and I think that. Its influence has been outsized to the amount of wine, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It tells you something that it's one of the more exciting things that's happened in wine. I think it's had an influence. I think people's general interest in the, the products they're putting in their bodies has had a big influence. Um, you know, you'll, you're starting to see natural, quote unquote, natural wines being somewhat co-opted by because there is no legal definition being co-opted by large corporations. Right. And it's which they did in food too. Yeah. And the word natural on food is the craziest. It monitor. Need a damn, yeah. Need a damn thing. Yeah. And it's, and it's the same, you know, that's the reason. And, and a lot of people disagree with it. And some people agree with it, but the reason Demeter 
trademarked biodynamics in the U.S. It's not trademarked in Europe. It's trademarked right. in the U.S. is to protect it from being co-opted. Now, some people who are in the biodynamic world feel that that was kind of like just a revenue grab. You know? Right. But on the other hand, I can guarantee you if they hadn't trademarked it, it would be co-op. It would be all, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd have. You'd damned have, if you do, damned yeah, if you don't. You'd have, you know, biodynamic whipped cream that was made out of plastic products, you know. <laughs> this this shaving cream smells like a ram's horn. Yeah, that's right. There, right. We bury our shaving cream in um, a horn for six months, and then we you can spray it on your face. It'll right, make you so live longer. <laughs> we have to take a quick break, but we've even yet to scratch the surface of what we need to talk about. So we are talking to Ray Isle. Ray Isle is the Food of Wine exec, executive editor at Food of Wine. He just wrote his new book, which we're going to get into. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ray Isle. Um, Ray, we're going to get into the book now. Great. And... The majority of the book is an in-depth guide, but you lead the reader at the beginning, you know, with some very substantial information and some thought-provoking stuff. Um, you also make some very compelling points and analogies that I, you know, want to talk to you about at the beginning of the book. Um, and we mentioned this before, and now you could talk about it, okay? <laughs> You have said, and you see yourself as a wine writer and not as a wine critic. Wine critics tend to rate wines, and the variation of rating systems is all over the place. 
you know, you have the old Parker, Lavino does five. Um, but that's one thing. You have this really strong feeling, which I've tended to agree with for a long time, about wine ratings and really what their value is and if there is any value. And, you know, talk to me about that because you don't operate in that rating world. Yeah, unfortunately. Not as a writer, but in right. belief. In belief and 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 as a writer. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate not to have to rate wines. Um I so the problem I have with it is is it is a it's an assumption of objectivity that I don't think is real and, um, but aesthetics is a complicated subject and and look <laughs> wine ratings is is a form of aesthetics and it's an aesthetic judgment um, on a wine you're saying that this this Chateau Neuf de Pop got ninety three points okay that's that's your your sense is that it's ninety three points within that let's say universe of Chateau Neuf de Pops well. You're, you're doing that from an assumed aesthetic idea of what Chateauneuf de Pop is supposed to be. Um, all criticism, whether it's, you know, art, movies, books, wine, whatever, you know, generally works within a kind of aesthetic um, commonality, kind of a common agree, uh, idea of right. what, what is good and what is bad. But but you have to ask yourself questions about, you know, who, who decided that, who, who came up with that, um, you know, common agreement on things. And you look at any interesting art movement, it's almost always trashed initially by, by, right. by what is, what is accepted, you know, cubism. Well, everybody initially said cubism was garbage, you know, and, and so I, I have this problem and it's particular with wine where critics will just say it's 95 points and, and you think, well, what it's 95 points permanently wine changes as it goes you know it's everybody's had wines they thought were going to do well over time and didn't do well over time it's 95 points on this day when i tasted it blind in a room with 20 other wines you know um which is a way that no well, one on the we've planet been drinks blind wine. tasting too yeah because blind tasting is another thing you don't necessarily believe in and yeah. they intertwine on this discussion yeah they do because i think that to really you know I think I do think that if you're tasting for flaws, and let's say you're a, a winemaker tasting barrels, you might want to taste blind to try and isolate flaws. I think that rating interesting wines without knowing who made them and why they made them and how they made them and where it came from and what the soil was and so on seems bizarre to say the least. Um, and I think that you know it's and you know this from when I mean I do this all the time in wine seminars, you know you can take the same wine and you find five different ratings from five different critics. And so this one says it's 93. This one says it's 89. This one says it's 97. And, and so at that point, and each, each person feels their rating is objective. Well, uh, clearly there's subjectivity going on here. And there's, there's plenty of studies about um, the nature of how our brains work and how, when we think we're being, objective we're often being subjective and you know i i cite this story that daniel kahneman uses in his who is he um he's a he's a uh neuro um psychologist who wrote a book called thinking fast and slow and it's about how our brains operate but there's a famous study in that was done with israeli judges where they were basically they were called upon to decide whether people were you know guilty or innocent but more or less the the, the oh i read this yeah the guilty ratings got higher and higher before the lunch hung, before lunch well the hungrier they got <laughs> and then crazy. as soon as they had lunch the guilty ratings dropped back down and you're like and these are guys who are paid these are judges who are 
in theory, impartial and right. trained, you know, and so I, you know, I, I can't remember if I used this in a book or I've said it before, but it's like, you know, if, if, if Robert Parker's, you know, cat got run over, you know, the morning before he rated you're your dead. wine, you're toast, you right. know, he's in a horrible mood and he won't be rating your wine 98 points. I mean, that's, I mean, I, and all respect to Bob Parker, because I think he was a brilliant taster and, and he got a lot of, of, you know, he, he, by virtue, not so much of himself as of the nature of the market, uh, ended up such a central power figure that it was inevitable that people were going to take him down. But the guy, the guy had a huge effect on wine and he came into wine at a time when there was just a lot of garbage rate like, recommendations out there. And he came in with a very Ralph Nader kind of, right. you know, customer protection idea and people tend to forget that regardless that's ancient history at this point but i just i just find this whole you know reducing a wine and particularly a, a good wine to 94 points tastes like blueberries and a little bit of tar and you know and elements of of pencil pencil shaving. shavings so take your pick it's it's fine but it misses the point for me you know so you've probably said it but what is the point that the point is, is that that's the rating today, your subjective, all those things. Yeah. The point is that I think that interesting wines have stories. I think that by knowing those stories, you change your experience of, of drinking the wine. Um, and, and if you're, if you're willing to go that far, you'll have more pleasure and more engagement by doing so. You know? Right. And that to me is more, interesting than point scores now there's a reason i mean point scores let's put it this way there are a lot of wines in the market there is a huge number of wines in the market and there are consumers without a lot of knowledge about which wine they should buy as opposed to another wine and it's one going back to one thing you said is one reason why a great wine store with people who actually talk to you and kind of remember what you bought before they is, don't have rating is, cards it's the single best resource anybody can have it's like better than listening to me better it's that's human interaction in a store full of wine is great that's not how a lot of people buy wine they go they go to a very big store and there's a little you know 93 points 92 points and there's 500 chardonnays on the wall there's a reason for those point scores is so people can navigate this crazy excess of of or it's not an excess but just crazy number of wines and so i get it as a consumer tool but as someone who writes about wine it seems to me that if you are interested in wine, if you're not just looking for a random beverage, then learn, 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 learn don't, who, who don't made it. Don't rely it on it. the ratings. Yeah, don't rely on the ratings. Rely Initially on, or entirely. Rely on your interests. Rely on your on your own palate. Um, you know, I, I do think. So a couple of crazy things. Yeah. I mean, one, we talked a little about it. There's so much content online most we agree is good. That'll help you with that. Yeah. The stories mm -hmm. and the backgrounds. But am I wrong? The majority of how wine is criticized is rated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is anybody out there doing it where they're not putting a rating that's like big? Mm -hmm. uh, me? Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't well, know that's if I'm why big, I'm, but I'm, I mean, I'm doing it without putting a rating That's why I'm it. talking to you, yeah. you know. But again, yeah. you're not pinning yourself as a wine critic yeah. as Jeb Dunnick or somebody is. Where yeah. And I, it's no disrespect to people who, you know, I think Jeb has a killer palate. Right. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, if, you're, if your palate is in tune with the critic, you'll probably, like, if he says something's 95 points, you'll probably really like it. Right. That's the but, other thing. But you still won't, and this is why, you know, 
unless there's some information to go with that, you still won't know much about the wine. You'll like it. It'll taste good. But there's there's more to it than that. And I right. think it's, there's a reason why people get into wine. And it's not, you know, it's 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 the same reason people get into sports or baseball or they get into whatever they get into because, you know, there's, there's, and, um, you know, I think this goes back, um, uh, to Dottie and John, uh, you know, I think they're the ones who came up with the analogy for baseball. At the wall street journal. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll borrow it. You know, as long as you know that you can hit a ball, the, the point is to hit the ball and run around the bases. You can go to a baseball game with friends and have a good time. Like you won't be completely lost and you'll have a beer and you'll have a good right. time. If you know something about, you know, you know, what a, what an unforced error is or, you know, how you can steal a base, you'll have a different experience that's somewhat deeper. It's not so you won't necessarily have more fun, but you'll have a different kind of enrichment to what you do. And you can take that all the way to being the equivalent of a wine geek, which is knowing everybody's batting average going back to 1950. And, you know, and you can imaginarily put right. your, your fantasy teams together. You will have a very different experience than, than I will at a baseball game. Deeper, possibly, not necessarily more fun. But I think somewhere in between those two poles is right. a really great place to be with wine. Right. Where you, um, you and not rely on, you know, the one pole or whatever. Yeah. Um, you, we talked a little earlier about, you know, how food is kind of a wider net and how people care about food and they probably didn't put much time into thinking about their wine. And there was a movement probably in the 60s, died down a little, and now it's come back. Um, you've made a couple of comparisons about food and wine that, you know, were memorable to me. Um, I think one was sort of a marketing thing, comparing it to chicken soup, and the other was, you know, Taco Bell, which ain't so bad, but let's think yeah. of what things are and all that. So yeah. we talk about this. Yeah, so, too. I mean, the chicken soup analogy, which is it, which I, it's a little bit what I was talking about a second ago, is that, you know, it, the wine is, so, there's so many wines, and it's sold in, in a sort of a crazy way, and that, you know, if, the analogy is like if you went into a grocery store and there were, you know, a wall of 500 chicken soups, which, which is where isn't which anything isn't near. anywhere, right. you know, and which is what you get when you go into Total Wine and look at Chardonnay. Right. And and some of the chicken soups got 92 points and some got 87 points and some were like single chicken chicken soups and some were chicken soups from Italy and some were chicken soups from you know Napa. You would you would wa- turn around and walk out thinking these people are out of their minds and I don't want any chicken soup. Thank you. And and yet with wine, that's kind of. The, the situation except um and then the taco bell thing is again going back to like what i said about you know if it's a hot day and i just mowed the lawn i'm certainly happy to have a budweiser i mean a taco bell taco tastes good it's been it's been created to taste good by very smart scientists, scientists. you know right. they have they have flavor labs mouth that, that make it mouthfeel they Spices. have they have like I, I learned this from a new yorker they have this like crunch level that's like <laughs> tested great. in terms of pounds per square inch it's meant to taste really good. And you know what? Talk about the tacos taste pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. And I personally like them. On the other hand, I'm well aware that I don't know where the hell that ground beef came from. I don't know. No one, no one cooked that thing for me. I mean, some large factory produced a lot of shells, some pre-packaged bag of beef went into it. And, and additionally, then it's kind of, you know, you get it handed to you through a hatch and a drive through. That is a very different experience from, Going your home. guy in Houston. Yeah, from, you know, or from like me going home and taking, you know, some uh, some good sausage and some fresh tomatoes and 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 making a ragu that, you know, where I know where it came from. I know, you know, I know where I bought the food. I know where the food 
what farm it came from. I know that those tomatoes were grown in New Jersey as opposed to like trucked up from God knows where and gassed to keep them stable. And, and that's the same thing with wine. I mean, you know, you, there are plenty of wines out there that are made in massive amounts that taste perfectly fine, but it's not the same thing as buying food at a farmer's market. But like Taco Bell made to taste perfectly fine. And made to taste perfectly Not because of vintage year and no, low no. intervention. I mean, you, know, you can use enzymes to, to you know, sort of homogenize your, your right. um, fermentation. Industrial commodities. You use tea bags full of oak chips. You know, do there are lots, lots and lots of ways to make wine very consistent and perfectly pleasant and totally anonymous. Right. Um, so the analogies to food are very clear. I, I love the chicken soup thing because, you know, when you finish talking about it, it's, you've just left the store with 500 chicken soups. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, of every, you know, type. Um, all right. So a few vital questions about the book. Let's talk about the mm -hmm. book. All that stuff is in the book and there's it discussions is. of it. And like I said, the book is a guide and the high majority of the pages really weave you. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But I, I'm always curious when people write books, when did you decide <laughs> you were going to write this book? Is this an idea, you know, that's been looming? You and I talked about your transition into these thoughtful wines. Um, why now? You know, I guess COVID may have done something to do with it or whatever. Um, and how long did it take to write? And I'm sure there was travel and stuff in there. Yeah. So it, it, it the idea there was, I had kind of an, I knew I wanted to do a book and I didn't want to do a yet another one-on-one guide to wine or, or whatever. It, it just, there's lots out there and there's some that are a very, lot some, out there that are good by good people. Absolutely. But there's lots out there. There's lots out there. And it's, and if I was going to spend that much time working on something, I might as well be something I was passionate about. Um, so there was kind of an inchoate idea that I wanted to do a book and I started noodling on what form it might be. And I relatively quickly landed on, cause I think it was what I've been thinking about a lot was this question of, of, you know, how, how the way wine is made and grown goes into what's in the bottle and why that's, why that matters and why that's a way of looking at wine that's not you know, just the 95 points and whatnot. When was that? Because one of the questions probably, was when. Was so like, like working backwards, it took me about three years to write the book. Okay. And, and from the point that I sold the, the proposal, it took probably f several months before that to put the proposal <coughs> um, into a shape that a publisher could look at. And, and I worked with my agent, David Black, who's fantastic, on taking my kind of general idea and turning it into a book proposal that someone could look at and say, yes, we'd like to actually publish that as opposed to interesting, but what the hell are you talking about? And it's you know? big too. And it, yeah. And the proposal itself was about 50 pages, 55 pages. Jesus. So it was, it was a, a lot of the introductory material of the book, plus a few profiles to, to kind of, um, give it, uh, give some understanding of what that part would be. I think when I initially started thinking about the book, I wasn't going to profile wineries. I just wanted to, write what is now the introduction at kind of length and talk about these wide questions that... of wine. And I think David steered me towards profiling wineries as well, quite rightly, because, you know, you have, the publisher has to believe that they're going to be able to sell the book for you to be able to publish the book. Were, were you in agreement at the point where he said, listen, you could do this. We need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think it was, 
it was one of those things where it wasn't exactly how I initially started, but as soon as I started writing a few of the profiles, like, yeah, I could make this. And you had a criteria, you have or have still have the criteria. Yeah. It's not just randomly um, selected wineries, you know, I'll reveal it and you respond to mm -hmm. it. They're basically people you visited or people you've spoken with, you yes. know, whether it was on the phone or whatever. And that excludes a lot of other wineries and makes that list your list because that's how – is that yeah. a fair representation? That's a fair representation. It's essentially – there's no one in the book that I haven't spoken to or met um, or visited. Um, you know, I, I had to do a caveat for Zoom calls because I was working through the pandemic and right. I, that really messed up my travel somewhat substantially. Um, and the dynamic. And the dynamic, the whole thing. But and I walk in the earth. And but all, Zoom yeah. calls were great for, for people that I knew I wanted to talk to. So that's one caveat. There's no absentee corporate billionaire ownership with, with w I think, one exception, which is Ridge. Um, and, um, but they're kind of hands off. They're yeah. so – it's the weirdest corporate ownership ever because they, yeah. they really don't – I mean so much so that people don't even realize that Ridge has any kind of ownership. So that's kind of – and I couldn't leave Ridge out because that seemed insane. And, and it's also – the other criteria were that um, – they were working in ways that were beneficial to the environment. So well, that, sustainable, organic, et cetera, et cetera. I think this whole discussion yeah. is prefaced on that. And you then, don't need to disclaim yeah. that. And I mean, then primarily, the wine primarily also most of the wines, the vast majority of the wines in the book are under a hundred dollars and a lot of them around 20 to 30, let's say, because I mean, and a hundred and you know, accessibility to a lot of them. And accessibility. Right? I mean, some of them are very small. Some of them are larger in terms of production, but you know, it's like, Yes, Domain Romani Conti would fit into my criteria, but you know the, you the cheapest, said cheapest, cheapest yeah. wine is two thousand bucks a bottle. It's like and and is that on release or secondary? I, I, it's unclear because they don't ever publicize their That's release right. prices. That's but it's right. also like how many pages have been written about DRC? Like, do I need? No, I'd rather write about. So to that point, is there anyone that you wanted to write about that for whatever reason you couldn't talk to or visit or yeah. there was enough in the book and maybe that's a second book or yeah. revision? There's, there are so many, there are so many people that, that could have been in the book that I either couldn't get to in time so, or so that's crazy. Cause there's so many and it's literally a doorstop it's a, of a book, it's a long you book. know? Yeah. So I mean, kudos to how much you put in and great to hear that there's, yeah. you know, and I keep coming up with people that I'm like, Oh damn, they should have been in the book. You know, I, I mean, I know. Well, don't drive Dejahikin at Lagargista. I, I met her for the first time last night. At, at a book party for she's my book. She's been in town for raw and, wine and, and she's, character. And she's wonderful and she would have made absolute sense to be in the book, but I just had simply never had the opportunity to meet her. Right. Her and influence then, on that region and yeah. what she's doing. And then there are some, some wineries sold and I had to, to trim them out, you know, because, or, or they sold and then, I mean, Vietti is the, is the, was a tough one for me because they sold a while back, but Luca Carrado was still there and still the, the very yeah. much the voice of the winery. And about a month before I, turn the manuscript in and they were in the book and about a month before I turned the manuscript in and Luca was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm out at Vietti. I, and I, I think he just had, there, maybe there was too much corporate influence or I don't know what, but I he guess. left and the entire interview was Luca because he's insanely quotable and he's a yeah, wonderful, he's a winemaker. And so uh, I had to cut him, you know, um, I, that's interesting. That's, yeah. you know, another aspect of it. Um, all right. So let's tell people. So, 
hey, this sounds cool. I want to go out and buy it. Tell people how to use the book. I described it as, you know, there's 40 plus pages of some, you know, deep writing about, you know, defining sustainability, organics and all that. There's all these different thoughts, a lot of stuff we talked about, other things we didn't. But you get to the other, you know, 500 pages and <laughs> it's basically broken down into somewhere near 15 countries over three dozen re regions. Tell people, all right, you got the book. Here's how you use it. How yeah. do I use it? So uh, one thing about this book is that you don't have to read it linearly. I mean, right. it's, 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 it's a long book, but it's about 50 to 60 pages of introductory material, which I actually think is kind of the heart of the book. It's about it's what it's why this book exists. And it's my feelings about why I'm writing it uh, for, for better or worse. The, the vast majority of the book are profiles of wineries. And a lot of those profiles are based on interview material and in the voices of the people who work make that wine and i wanted to very much i wanted to capture personal stories and personal Story. feeling personal philosophies about how they work um so in that regard you can read the intro and introductory material straight through but you can honestly just kind of bounce around in the book because each, each profile is its own If you're going story. to Italy. If you're going to Italy, yeah. read the Italy section. If you're going I mean, to Abruzzo, read the Abruzzo section. Or if you're bored and you want to read about Georgian wine, read the Georgia section. Which, and, it, which is great. I, I think the preface is you should read you know, the, the beginning part of the book. One of the other things I noticed and liked was each section, the lead-in was not formulaic. And when I say that, it wasn't yeah. just each one had this little history and mention of that. Like you talk about champagne and, you know, just they've been great at marketing of what shit. Yeah. And then you'll talk about the Rhone and just totally different lead into it, yeah. which is really nice because, you know, it's it's each thing has its own feel and vibe. And, you know, you, you yeah. And it's very much written to be, I mean, it's, it's written to be enjoyable. I mean, I, I, like most wine writers and like most anybody on the planet, if, you, if the first thing you open a wine book to and it's like this wine has 10 grams of titratable acidity and it was in new oak for you know seven months and, and your immediate instinct is to close the book and, and think, I'll just read that another time. And So, <laughs> you know, I have a point I want you to get to um, and let's get a little heady because kudos to you to what you just said. You do not get too techy. Yeah. You know, nerdy and techie are different things. You could be techie and nerdy. You could be nerdy yeah. with no tech and all of that. Um, and a couple of things you said that, you know, caught my attention. Um, I mean, you've mentioned wine is intellectually interesting, complex, and we all know the interesting part is the cultural history, which yeah. is the story part and all of that. You talk about two things that I want you to talk a little more. You talk about, and I don't the moreness of yeah. wine and that wine is contextual. Yeah. You yeah. know, and just walk me through those things. Yeah. Cause when I was reading them, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, contextuality first. So I, the truth is, I mean, unlike the way critics taste, which is like in a room with 20 bottles lined up and, in blind, and blind, you know, in a day, you know, we, we, I mean, wine is made to be drunk and, right. and, and ideally with, with other people. Um, though it's, it's a, nice thing. Thing, it's a, a social thing, a social lubricator. Yeah, but as a, and our the way our brains work and the way our social worlds work, you know, it, wine is very contextual in that, you know, if you have a bottle of, you know, whatever, take your pick, Provencal Rosé, and you have it, you know, on the beach in Provence with your 
new spouse or whatever, you know, or partner and, and you're having this insanely romantic time. It's your favorite wine. It's your favorite wine. And if you go back and, and you, you know, you have a horrible day at work and, you know, your cat gets run over or whatever, and you open it, it's not going to taste the same as it did when you were on the beach in, because you're different. And, and, and taste is a function of, is to some degree chemical and that our, our, tongue and nose has receptors that, that interpret chemical signals and turn them into taste and flavor. But at the same time, it's our brain that's really doing it. And everybody has that experience of, of, I mean, it's so common, even more in the regular consumers than the wine business where I get this from people all the time. It's like, I had this wine in Europe when I was there right? and I came back and it just, it's, it's they must've done it yeah. differently. They it, shipped it. It was weirder. It's environment, food, people, yeah, it's all like, those things yeah, contribute, you, right? You That's it, the context. You had it on vacation on the, on the Amalfi coast. Of course it tasted great. And so that's one aspect of wine of our experience of wine. That's really important. You know, that, that, that contextual stuff. Um, and then, oh God, what was the other part? Moreness. Moreness. You so, answered the easy one first. Yeah. And the moreness thing. So this is, I didn't even have a word for it um, until I was, I was talking with Damon Delacheneau at Le Grand Stéphane in, in Loire. I was interviewing him before I even knew this was for a book. It was for a story I was doing for the magazine about Pascaline Le Pelletier, who was absolutely brilliant, our, wonderful, you know, our, um, our queen. Yes. Um, and, and. And Damien's interesting because he has a, t- a technical winemaking background, but he he now works more, you know, biodynamically and 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 basically making natural wine. And he said, you know, there's a he found that there was a sort of moreness or or or, or that's the way he put it. It's like until he started working biodynamically, he 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 didn't find this quality of there being a kind of um, something beyond pure flavor in wine, something beyond just, you know, what it tastes like on your tongue. And that's a, that there's a kind of a, a this is where it gets very hard to describe. A well, that's that, okay. You know, but, but we know, let's get close. we know with some wines you taste them and there's, there's just presence. That's not, um, what you get in a commercial product, you know, you, right. you, you feel energy what, and, and it's or, very different, very difficult to pin down. It's probably not measurable. Um, and it's probably partly psychological, but, but regardless, but it's a thing. It's a thing. It's a moreness. Yeah, and it's you know, it's 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 very funny that one of the weird analogies for me a long time ago, I did a, a weird wine TV program, and one of the guests was Julianne Moore, who is who's obviously striking. She's a movie star. But there was this fascinating thing where, and this is how charisma works. And charisma is something that some people have, and is not measurable either. And Julianne Moore is quite beautiful to begin with but the second the the lights and the camera went on it was like someone turned up her wattage it was like a rheostat on a wall it's like and and your eyes just went like straight to her and you're like and this is not a it's not a purely voluntary thing i mean she's a very good actor so there's that but right. it's also just that kind of charismatic thing that some actors have the that moreness you, to her that, the moreness to her and it makes you look at them and you know i had the same experience eons ago when I was working pre-wine in a rare bookstore and Ken Kesey came in and, and he was friends with the owner and I didn't even know it was Ken Kesey and Ken Kesey obviously was, you know, kind of an idol of an idol of the, of the, you know, sixties. And, and he started talking and he was just kind of talking about, I mean, he started talking to me and whoever else was in the store about something. And like within 20 minutes, he had every single person who came in the store sort of gravitated to him and started, you know, people kind of sat down and started listening. And it's like, 
what the hell? You know, it was. You would think he'd be maybe more aloof or erudite, but there's really no, a moreness was, to really him. Magnetism and, and who know. he, what's coming from inside. Yeah, and the, and some wines have that in that same unmeasurable, but you but right. you know it's their way. Those are good, and, um, and that's what Damien was trying to get at. I think. Yeah, and he's a good person to sort of you know launch the idea of what moreness is. Um, I got to get you out of here. I told you this was going to go and we still have things to do. Yeah. Um, but I just want to tell you, you know, my feelings about the book. Um, I love the book and thank you. You know, I saw, I've had a lot of great people on who are a lot of books and I love those books and their books, but you know, I like this book, you know, for me, it was very informative, detailed, and, and that's under the umbrella of wines and the whole mindset of what I believe in. So there right. was not a lot of waste, <laughs> you know, balancing, you know, the information was usable. Um, I always knew you were a charming guy and, you know, good sense of humor, but it really comes out in this book. I mean, your style of writing Thanks. is really, you know, it's funny and um, you're a funny guy and it's hard to be funny as a stand-up comedian. It's hard to write about it. It's hard to do it in conversation. You accomplished that in the book. And one thing that stood out to me over and over is I've never seen anyone use parentheses the way you do. <laughs> it's just the whole thing. It's just, it's like this alternate perspective or a, Hey, yeah, I had to say that, but here's what I feel or, you know, mm -hmm. and it's very interesting. And I think anyone who reads it, you know, will see that so that, you know, that was very cool. So congrats on all of that in the book. We're going to do two things. We're going to do the wine list. I'm going to ask you five questions, move through these quickly because we don't have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to taste the wine that's sort of representative of the type of wines and stories we've been talking to. So let's do the wine list first. What are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? Has the seasons changed anything? Are you doing any research? I am doing research right now for a column on Austrian whites. So um, you're drinking. A and, I'm, and, and I've been drinking a lot of Gruner and Riesling. I okay. Mean, and, and very happily. You know, okay. Um, the, um, okay. So that's kind of for work. Any yeah. outsider work? Any yeah, I, like I, hey, this is nice weather for Brunello. Or yeah, it's a nice it's, it's it's nice weather for Nebbiolo of any kind. I, okay, I really you know I cook a lot, so and the cook and my what I cook shifts with the season for sure, and so the wines tend Matches. to tr tr go along. So with Nebbiolo, that. Nebbiolo for, for um, sure. Rioja, I, I really Rioja, love Rioja. Underrated. Yeah. Okay, good answers. I didn't mention I'm going to post these on our social media. Okay. Um, goofiest. Question, but this is like if there's any one guy where this is the wheelhouse guy <laughs> for the question is what's your favorite wine and food pairing? Not what's great, you know, right. as a magazine, what you like. And we know you're not going to make it off and off. And, right. But when you do, it's like you're geared up for it. Yeah, my I got my favorite wine and food pairing. It's this is tricky because there's so many possibilities. But um, well, I would, it's you got to dig deep and say what's you know the ooh ah one. Yeah, know? I think the the ooh ah one. Um, yeah, okay, this is going to be a weird one because the weirder I, the better. I just did. There's a grape nation rule: you can't say champagne and oysters. Continue. Yeah, yeah no, that's fine. I just did a, a whole tasting of Sauterne Chateau Kim actually straight through the entire meal at Le Cuckoo in New York. And with? Daniel with Daniel Rose and the chef and, and and he was sort of given the task: can you make you know a, a meal, multi course meal that all will go with with with, with dessert wine, you know, with Chateau Kim, which he did because he's a brilliant chef. The complete blow away, couldn't imagine that it would have worked, and it worked brilliantly. Was 
artichoke sauteed with a little bit of French ham and sa- sauternes. Shouldn't work. Should be horrible. But isn't like artichoke and asparagus like it, the impossible things impossible. to pair no. a wine? I mean, so and, he nailed and, it. And the worst thing you could imagine with it would be a would be a dessert wine, that, you know, like Chateau de Kim. And it was gorgeous. As one of those. That's, I'll tell you, star. nobody's ever given me that answer. Yeah. So you did a good job on that. All right. Third question. Listen, you travel a lot. You're around a lot. You know, I follow you on social. I see you at different, you know, restaurants, tastings and all that. Answer this without making it favorites or ranking them. But give me some examples of your favorite wine restaurant and bar only in the context of you walk in. What a list. Great people. Good vibe. Cool place. Yep. Can you think are you comfortable you know yeah. throwing a few names I mean, sure. and i'll disclaim it for you just because he mentioned these doesn't mean he doesn't go to the other ones or like them. this is just an example of some of them yeah um chambers in new york because pascaline I mean, pascaline's a, a friend and the wine list is killer and, and interesting food. and the food's great right now um uh i really like charter oak in napa um i like because i again i mean i like restaurants where i i know people and right chris costa is a former food and wine best he's chef a great uh, wonderful guy chef. and it's a good wine list and a cool place uh Roscioli in rome i mean it's a it's a mecca for which wine is now in people. new york which is now in new york which is Ariel. kind of mind-blowing yeah. you know though i'm not I, I i have yet to get to the the new york the upstairs part of the new york one but. so ariel's partner is the wine guy from remessa mm-hmm. not you know so there's a not so Maria. To, yeah they, they, they all work together yeah. but his attention to wine and he was on the show yeah this guy is very passionate about the wines he drinks and selects um, which is cool. All right, so those are great ones. All right, fourth question. And don't forget you did this before, so I have mm-hmm. to compare the answers. Your favorite all-time wine. Now, there's a good chance when I asked you that question that the question in my mind was, oh, I got Ray Isle here. This guy works for food and wine. What's the most expensive rare wine you've ever tasted? I don't care about that anymore. Yeah. What's that wine today, and you've been through a lot writing the book, that either was a gateway transcending important yeah you know and it could be more than one but there's got to be and it may go back to the experience Mm -hmm. where you had that wine you know when you were getting engaged Mm -hmm. and what's what's well i mean one and i go back to this a lot is um which isn't in the book but it is the wine that that like and it's one of those things that all people a lot of people in wine business have the one that like made you go holy crap wine is amazing and that was a 1984 diamond creek volcanic hill vineyard um cabernet sauvignon napa valley and i remember having it a long time ago that's when boots and al were around boots and al were around and it was in i had it probably in 1990 or something um at a dinner with a former girlfriend and her father and i just remember thinking what is this stuff and i wasn't in wine at all i was in grad school in english and i was like oh my god this is amazing and then it was gone and you had that that thing that everybody has where you you take the last sip and you're kind of like oh shit there's no yeah, more that's the thing know? about wine and that put me on a path to trying to buy wines that would that we somehow achieve that same experience um, um an opinion on that wine because i have a bunch you know i collected mm-hmm. them many many years ago um you know napa got that knock for the parkerization like yeah. bordeaux did does diamond creek not necessarily fit in that it's not an over the t- I, it's a big wine it's a big wine but do you it, see other I don't think it ever went as far as a lot of uh, Napa right. cabs did, which is um, why you liked it. And it was yeah, and it, and then that era was that eighty four was sort of pre Parker. I mean, he was publishing, but it was not the eighty two vintage was yeah, starting yeah, to come really out years later. Created his yeah. career, um, so it wasn't made with you know. To, 
in that sense. And, and I, also, there, there's also, you know, that, one of the things people forget with Napa is that when the phylloxera thing hit Napa in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of vineyards were replanted. And they were re replanted very differently from how they were before. And some of that ripeness that you get later on has to do with viticulture and not with Parker's right. influence or anything like which that. Which is a great thing to point out, um, which is kind of good for Napa. All right. Last question. Certainly should be able to handle this one. I want you to recommend to me a wine, a red and a white, best wine, 15, 20, 22 bucks in my uh, great accomplishment of being redundant. I always say that my kids are in their late 20s, 30s, a little older than your daughter. They go to parties. They can't bring the supermarket crap that we're talking about. But they also can't afford 40, 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. So to show up at a dinner party or to give a gift, 18, 20, 15, 22 bucks, you can give me category. You can give me makers both. Where's the best value in there for red? For red, um, I think Tiberio in Abruzzo's there, um, Montepulciano de Abruzzo is a and, spectacularly good one for that, the price. There's that, you, you know, yeah. like I said, I was just with um, Chiara Pepe. And, yeah. You know, but there is in those regions some great. Yeah, the Emilio Pepe ones are, are at the top of the yeah, yeah. pay scale. But, but there's great but, makers just because the region yeah. and the. Okay, so for red, we're saying Abruzzo de Montepulciano. No, Montepulciano de Abruzzo, so particularly from Tiberio because I think she's making brilliant okay. wines. Okay, and she's close to that price range? Yeah, it's around 20, uh, 21, okay. something like that. Yeah. I mean, she's a great winemaker. Yeah. Um, white. You know, um, that's. I would, I would probably go with. Um, let me think for white in that affordable zone. Um, hmm. uh, well, I actually think. Do so. I have Ray Isle tongue tie? Well, it's so there's so many possibilities. Should I drop know? the mic now? <laughs> you know, it's just like I start to think of all these possibilities that would be great. Um, but I, any of them are good. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like, I mean, the wine we're potentially about to talk about, Pagao Chateau Pagao makes a great Cotaron Blanc. So is, we'll put that in the red and I yeah. will post that. But you're you're yeah. you're dodging the white. Answer. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think um, some of the Lawson, Ernie Lawson's um, German, the German, the, the I can't even remember is a blue slate or red slate. One's dry. One's cabinet level. One's one's those dry, are one's trucking. Both of them are not crazy expensive. Both are terrific wines. So I, I think that's a good answer because yeah. you're going to a bunch of good places. The maker. Yeah. Different types, you know, trocking the, yeah. the cabinet. Um, and Riesling is always, you know, a good choice. All right. Well, well, well done there. Like I said, I'll post them. You only have a couple of minutes left. As a matter of fact, when we're done, you're going to curse me. Um, <laughs> so we do this thing called the weekly wine sip. You know, every week we taste a different wine on here. I have a lot of winemakers on, so why not let them talk about it? So I said, Ray, pick a wine that's sort of representative of, um, you know, what you've been doing here with the book, which are thoughtful makers, accessible, you know, cool wines and all of that. So you selected um, a 2020 Chateau Pigau, which is a great maker. You selected a Cote du Rhone. Um, and when you're finished telling your assistant you're going to be late, <laughs> you are going to tell me. So it's a 2020 Chateau Pigau. It's a Cote d'Aron. But tell me a couple things. The maker, and don't spend a lot of time, the maker, the vintage, and what McClure is. So um, the maker is um, Laurence Ferreau at, at Chateau Pigau, and she's in the book. Um, legendary wine. Legendary winemaker. Amazing story. I mean, she remembers 
first tasting wine when her her grandmother would have her climb because she was small she would climb up and dip her fingers into the barrels and her grandmother could ask her what the wine you know whether it was flawed or not and right she was doing this when she was wow. six or seven <laughs> and then crazy. she and then she went out of wine for a while and then came back to run right. the family business and she makes one of my favorite chateau neuf de pops on the planet but she also makes this cote de rhone and so Cote de Rhone, I, I don't want to use the wrong word, but it's a more available, you know, yeah, so more grown grapes in the, you know, region of um, uh, the Rhone region, um, which is why there's more of it and the yeah, prices and it's, in check it's, and all it's, that. It's but a good, broader region. It's it's still, you know, they Pigau is one of those, you know, um, it uh, it's it's one of those properties that farms organically, but it's not on the label. Right. You know, that's not how they sell the wine, but it is how they work. Which plays into the vastness yeah. of the people we drink and you talk yeah. about. And honestly, I have no idea why it's called McClure. That may be I, it, the you know, it's, vineyard or whatever. It, I think it's not even the vineyard. I think it's a I think it's a, a reference to a local um, you know, uh tree or something that's nearby. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I do know I like it. Well, I don't I, <laughs> I don't want to insult or embarrass you, but you're yeah. the only guy with almost three hundred interviews that I've done that knows nothing about his wine. But that's no, okay. I, no, know, I, know, I know, I know where it came from. I'm sure from. you're right I about know where it came from. No, no, <laughs> I'm totally busting your balls. Um so let's just do a quick evaluation and then yeah. I'll get you out of here. So like a Cote d'Arone, it's got a good deep purple, right? So yep. that's on the color. Um, on the nose, I I smell what I smell, but I suck at describing them. What do you get on yeah, the nose? So Is it classic Cote d'Arone stylistically? Pretty, pretty classic Cote d'Arone. And which what's is that? there? To me, it's that dark cherry and dark berry notes with a little bit of black pepper. Um, right. You the know, spice. A little bit of that. spice. And and it has that, you know, it's not sugar sweetness, but it has that sweet ripeness to the fruit, which, you know, you can you can perceive. It's It's not... It doesn't have the line of sort of greenness that you would find in a cooler no. climate. It's got, it's got and richness. And the mouthfeel is Mouth. kind of medium. It's not mm -hmm. unctuous or, you know, it, it's, that's it's not I, even medium plus. It's the right medium. It's, it's the right medium, which is what I love about good Cote d'Arone, which is it has a lot of flavor and a lot of structure, but without being a overwhelmingly powerful wine. There are some out there that, that get up to, you know, because it's Grenache mostly and it's right can be very ripe if you what's the alcohol on this is this that's like a good question 13 or 14 i think it's maybe 14 you think it's that high i think it's i think it's 14 5 okay yeah. i think but it doesn't it, i don't think you perceive it for a wine of this type price and all that it's the alcohol is is handled well um last thing does the palate um replicate some of the nose descriptors um I think the palate replicates them pretty well, which is which is the dark fruit, the dark fruit, the, the spice, sweet, the, the sweetness of the fruit with no sugar. You know, which it's not it's not a sweet wine, but you'd sense the ripeness of the fruit. But it's what I love about it is it's balanced. It has it has a bright enough acidity that it that richness is lifted. So bright acidity is good yep. for food. What's a good pairing for this? Oh, I want some lamb. I okay, mean, it, it, it holds leg of lamb. Lamb's a teeny bit gamier than beef or other yeah. stuff, so it holds. And up it's to cold it. out today. It's like I'm ready yeah. for that. You know? We're ready to make the transition. All right, yeah. so that is the 2020 Domaine de Pigau grape maker, uh, the Cote d'Arone, the Pagora Ray. We're going to do a quick wrap up. I just want to get some info, and then I'm getting you out of here. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast. We ask you to subscribe because if you subscribe, the podcast pops up when it comes out and if you're lying in bed there's ray 
right next to you in bed. Pretty good, right? <laughs> That's kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, not to some people. Um, follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on X, we're at BenRuby, but you can always find us at those two with the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, we're on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Ray's wine list and the weekly wine sip selection, give you more info on that. Um, without letting you run out, where's the best place to purchase the book? Uh, best place to purchase the book is probably bookshop.org, which um, works with independent booksellers around the country. Or go to your great. independent local or go to bookseller. Your independent local bookseller, I will admit, is also on Amazon. But, okay, always you know, there. Not a small independent bookseller. but <laughs> So wait, bookshop.com? Bookshop.org. .org. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I know it's been around, but I want people to get kind of used to that. Um, all right. Where can we find your work on food and wine? They just go to foodandwine.com. Foodandwine.com. Okay, there's no, some no free paywall, content, no, no paywall nothing, and all that. You know, Google, you can find, my, the easiest way to find my work is put my name, Ray Isle, wine, and send it through there the Google go. machine. <laughs> and then, you know, I follow you on social media. So if people say, hey, this is a cool guy, even though your daughter doesn't think so, yeah. I want to follow him. Yeah. Where um, it, so on Instagram, Ray Isle. Okay. Um, very simple. I-S-L-E. Like an isle in the ocean. Right. And on Twitter for completely weird reasons. I am Isle Wine. Um, and that's, that's because cool. that's because there is a guy um, in Australia who's retired who lives on Raymond Island off the coast of Melbourne. That's funny. And, and he got there that's first. That's a bad break for you. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's really. like, what can you do? Um, All right. So you can follow Ray there. Um, I'm going to let you go, Ray. Ray, thank you. Thank you to our guest, Ray Isle. Um, his new book um, is available now. Now, you know, literally so let's now. go and get yes. it. We talked about it for, you know, almost an hour and a half. Yeah. The world Thank in a wine glass. The world in a wine glass with a much longer follow up title to it. But it's the world in a wine glass. It's a terrific book, a large book. Um, thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.